You're listening to episode 34 of Fearless Rebel Radio, and I have a question for you. Do you have a bitch inside your head? Well, then you don't want to miss this episode where I interview Leanne Ellington, writer, mad scientist, storyteller, and body image rebel on how to ditch the bitch in your head and drop the weapons of control that keep you trapped in body shame. This woman is a genius, and I can't wait for you to hear this. Before we begin, I just want to remind you to head to summerinanin.com or summerthenutritionist.com to grab your free Rule Breakers Guide to Rockin' Your Bod, where you'll get 10 steps to help you ditch dieting and love your body. All right, let's get started with this show. Do you know where you are? You're in Fearless Rebel Radio, baby! I am your host, Summer Inanin, a certified nutritional practitioner, diet rebel, and food lover on a mission to help you feel hot damn fearless in your body. Fearless Rebel Radio is here to empower you to defy the standards and break the rules in order to radiate confidence, relish in your uniqueness, and live life fearlessly on your own terms. Every episode, I will help you to do this by sharing practical advice, not-so-PG-rated rants, and interviews with Fearless Rebel guests. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, I am really, really excited for today's guest, and I think that once you hear her bio, you will understand why I am super excited to dig into this one. So on today's show is Leanne Ellington. Leanne is a writer, a mad scientist, a storyteller, an ambidextrous an ambidextrous hula hooper, I practiced saying that a few times, and wholeheartedly believes that peanut butter should become the fifth food group. Her career started after she personally lost over 100 pounds of fat and then went on to help other women do the same thing through her weekly television segments, award-winning corporate wellness programs, and women's fitness studio. Although weight loss was her main driver initially, major spine surgery and the face-off between her fat head and skinny head took her on a journey she could have never predicted and she became a spokeswoman for women all over the world shunning body image as usual you can learn more about her and her work at how to ditch the bitch.com and I think once you hear that website name you know exactly why I wanted to have her on the show so welcome to the show Leanne thank you so much summer I'm excited to be here yeah so based on your bio I mean it sounds like you have a pretty amazing story to tell so why don't you start off by telling everyone a little bit more about how you got to where you are today. Sure thing. No worries. You know, I was that typical gal growing up. I was I was a sedentary kid, um, very, very good at flexing my remote control bicep curl muscles. <laughs> and I, you know, just by the time I became a teenager, I was a lot bigger than the other girls my age. And it, it came with me into adulthood. And um, when I was in my early 20s, I hit that, hit that enough is enough uh, time, I'm sure we all have those moments. And I said, okay, something has got to give. I've got to change my life. You know, I was, I, I hid my insecurities with humor. I was, I was very self-deprecating and, and used humor to cover her up. But I was sick of hearing things like, oh, she'd be pretty if she lost weight. Or, you know, she's, she's really nice. She's got a great personality. You know, when you're a teenager, that's, that's one of the worst things to hear as a gal, you know? And so 
you know, fast forward to my college years, I, I was at a, a party with some friends and I saw people sitting on the couch and I saw people sitting on this coffee table and I went over when there was no seating left in that, in the area, I went and sat on the coffee table just like I'd seen so many other people do that night and the glass on top shattered. And thankfully I was with friends that loved me. And I, I mean, I don't even know what happened after that. I literally just bolted. I I ran out and just left. Right. My best friend took care of it all for me. And, but anyways, that was my breaking point literally. And so I started going down this road of, you know, I joined Weight Watchers and, and up until that point I had done everything, the, the healthy, the healthy options, the not so healthy options. Um, but at this point in time, unbeknownst to me, it kind of wouldn't have mattered what program or plan I was on. I had a really, really shitty relationship with food and really, really um, toxic relationship with my body. And so, but like I said, this, this, I didn't know this at the time. All I knew is that my whole life I wanted to be skinny, pretty, hot, lean, whatever the buzzwords were, right? Mm -hmm. And so I did whatever I needed to do to make that happen. And so, um, long story, a little less long, I did um, lose a good amount of weight um, about about half of it. I lost about 50 pounds and I was like, you know what? There's something to be said about this whole exercise thing. It's really cool. And so after college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated. So I packed up a backpack and I, and I worked odds and end jobs and I just went traveling around the world. And so after about three years of that, I would, I would go overseas and come back home when I ran out of money. You know, I was one of those shoestring backpackers after college. And I would, you know, after about three years of that, I was just like, you know what? I think I'm ready to be an adult. Um, and, and come back and, and do my thing. And I found this school, and it was called National Personal Training Institute. And the way they marketed it was come learn all the things you need to learn about being a personal trainer, the exercise science, all that stuff. But also the way they marketed it was lose weight in the meantime. And so I still had weight that I wanted to lose. And so I did find interest in becoming a personal trainer and getting in the industry. But I think I was more motivated to, to change my own body. And so um, I, I went to school. It was the best thing. It was the, I think I learned more there than I learned in, in all four years of college. Mm-hmm. And I graduated and I took an internship there and then I was an instructor there. And then when it got to the point where I felt like I wasn't really learning anymore, there was that, you know, leveling off point. I decided to start my own business and try to replace my income that I was making teaching at the school. And so at the time, boot camps were the big, you know, the big buzz. They were mm-hmm. just starting. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to start a boot camp in the park and, and I, I have, you know, nine weeks to replace my income at my, at my job. And so I did that and I, and I went full force with that. And um, about a year and a half later, I ended up, in between I was using a, a gymnastic studio and holding my, my classes there and it was amazing. It was, you know, it was kind of like an overnight success. Everybody really resonated with the fact that I had been where they were. You know, I, I really... Um, connected with that population of women that, you know, they, they felt like they, they needed somebody that got them that wasn't, you know, super lean and fit and skinny their whole life and that understood what was going on, you know? So everything was great. I was, you know, um, on paper, it was a huge success. I had my own TV segment every single week on the, on the local news. I was featured in CNN for my corporate wellness. I was, you know, everything was going great, but a couple things happened during my fitness career. Um, the first one was right at the beginning, actually. I, um, I mean, at the time, I couldn't have tell, told you what happened. Now I have a story around what happened, but but bottom line is, I majorly injured my spine, and I had to have major spine surgery. Wow. And 
after my surgery, I had a, um, some neurological stuff that resulted from the actual surgery, and that was a whole nother road on its own, right? Um, and I see now kind of what happened was I beat my body to the ground. I was so focused and, and concerned with getting lean and keeping up with my exercise regimen and, and not reverting back to my old habits that I essentially just didn't take care of my body. I didn't know how to take care of my body. All I knew was what I learned at the school, which was harder, faster, more, and you know, uh, do as many push-ups as the person next to you and that kind of thing, right? And so... Um, you know, there's a lot of things that could happen, but bottom line, I, I knowing what I know now, my, my surgery and my injury and all that stuff could could have been avoided, you know? But it's it's it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me because it sent me down this road of, of studying um, you know, the nervous system and, and really getting into movement and, and also the the mindset side of things because the other thing that happened was after I lost all the weight and I was my leanest, my fittest, I had this fat head. And it was, you know, when you grow up reading magazines and watching TV and they they have this message that you're going to feel happy and confident and amazing when you lose the weight and then you get to that point in reality and it doesn't happen, I mean, you're a little stumped, you're perplexed, you know, and nobody ever told me that I was going to have to really change my mindset. And so all of this, I, I went on this whole personal development, personal growth, self-image kind of journey. Um, and it and it really coincided with the work that I was doing with my body because I was learning about the nervous system and how to get my body better after I was having all these neurological issues after my surgery. But unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that the nervous system meant studying the brain. So I went down this world of, of studying brain science, which really, really intersects with the, the you know change science and, and behavior change and that kind of things and so it was like like I said the best thing that ever happened to me because it helped it really helped me on so many levels and so you know I said make a, a long story a little less long but now I'll, I'll bring it back to the I'll wrap it up to bring it to the to the present you know I um after after a few years in the fitness industry it was I feel like I had I had said everything I wanted to say about food, and I had said everything I wanted to say about movement. And the part that I that I wasn't sharing, and that, that people still weren't getting, was that there's it doesn't matter if you have the best diet or the best food plan or workout program if you don't use it, and if it makes you hate on yourself, and uh, if you're using food as a weapon of control and judgment and comparison, if you're using your body as a weapon of control and judgment and comparison and punishment, you know. And so um, there was this whole side of things, you know. It got to the point where I was, I was like, "There's a big disconnect." I'm, I'm prescribing at my boot camp studio push-ups and and burpees and and squats and stuff like that, and also prescribing these these meal plans and these these regimens for eating. But my life didn't look like that, you know. On the side, I was doing aqua jogging and more like occupational therapy exercises for my own type of, of situation. And then on the food side of things, I wasn't eating that way. I had created more of a food freedom in my life, or I was working towards it at least at that point, and really um, improved my self-image and self-esteem. And so I I went through, you know, it, it, it sounds more dramatic than it, than it was, or maybe it was more dramatic than it needed to be, but I really... I had this kind of like midlife identity crisis where I felt like I wasn't being true to myself. I wasn't able to be my authentic self. I felt like I was putting up a front kind of the front that I thought that the fitness industry expected from me. And, you know, looking back, these were obviously my own um, mindset blocks and limitations. And I now see what they what they were and what they weren't. But 
it made me really um, take a look at my life and say, you know what, Leanne? Um, you know, it really got to the point where I was like, okay, Leanne, you're going to move forward and you're going to break free of these chains of where food and exercise completely runs your life and you're going to do what you're meant to do or you're going to you're going to stay with it and you're going to live a life where you don't feel like you're being your authentic self and you're um placing an importance on food and exercise that doesn't need to be there um or I guess doesn't need to take over your life and so I I that breaking point came about a year ago and I said you know what life is too short and I I I put a stop to everything. I I closed my studio. It was a shock, you know, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made. Um more so because I of my clients and my staff was was the reason I kept it open as long as I did. I felt guilty closing it, you know. Yeah. Um, but then it got to the point where I was like, you know what? There's people that are better to serve them than my, myself. And um, what I have to share is is a lot more um, not important, but important for me to share. And so I wrote um, I wrote my book, and it's called How to Ditch the Bitch: Winning the Inner Game of Transformation. And the bitches are just you know I write like I talk, I guess you could say. And I grew up with three older brothers, so um, you know the, the bitches were were very real to me. And it's basically those that inner chatter in your head that's making you feel like you're not enough, like you're not doing enough. That and it's really the voices of shame, blame, guilt, and comparison that are keeping you from living your best self. And so. I wrote the book and I, I made the music video and uh, things have just been moving so quickly since then and it's the best thing I ever did and um, you know it's it's one of those stories where you you know you go through what it, what does Fifty Cent say in, in one of his books you know um, shit to, turn shit to sugar you know and yeah. it was it was hard and it was challenging but it was not as hard as staying in a life that I didn't want anymore you know um, and so that brings me to now so I help women ditch their bitches. Um, and specifically, I have programs that help them, um, you know, break their their chains from food and their bodies and, and create more freedom in their life um, around those things. But how to use food and their body and their mindset as a as a tool of influence rather than a weapon of control. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You just like spewed so much good stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> so many good things. Thanks. Um, where do we even begin? Uh, uh. Your story is, is amazing. And I just like so much good stuff, like I said. So Thank let's you. let's let's kind of go in the direction of, you know, stepping into your authentic self and just, you mm. know, cultivating that self-acceptance. You know, right. what was there a particular path that that worked for you or perhaps another way for me to word this is in your own journey did you discover a particular path that you know that other people could potentially follow on their quest for you know authenticity and acceptance yeah you know i think the biggest thing the the first step if if you would say if i would say if i were to put it in like a path like uh, you know equation would be this aware first there's got to be this awareness that that you're not living your best life and that you're not um, you know saying what you want to say doing what you want to do feeling how you want to feel maybe feeling confined by the opinions of others it shows up in so many different ways but most women and I work with women specifically but they recognize they know that they're not being their best self that there's a better there's more of them that they want to see and I think it shows up the the most obviously when you kind of you know, witness yourself showing up as a version of yourself that's like diluted. Mm. Like, you know, there's so much more in you. And so for me, I used to think when I first, you know, had this concept of ditching bitches, right? It was 
there's still, when I first started, you know, running with it, and this was even before the book came out, I was still in a place where I think I was like fighting. And what I mean by that is, when I when I got injured and I, I, I kind of got a little bit mad at the fitness industry and mad at the medical profession and like I was like grr like I felt wronged like why is this happening to me and in a bit of a victim mentality at, at times you know oh. and so I was looking to make um, I, I was looking to kind of like win a war or a battle right a constant battle and I feel like that's one of the things and, and it makes it totally correlates with what I've learned about how the actual brain works. You know, you can't be your logical best self when you're living in a world of like inter turmoil and fighting, you know? So the first, you know, the first step that I found has to be present is you got to wave the white flag and put and just put down the weapons that you're using against yourself. You know, the, 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 just be willing to not necessarily know what's the better better solution because the better solution won't matter if you're still like in this fighting fighting kind of mentality right so kind of going in it like how can i make peace with myself rather than how can i keep fighting myself mm -hmm. and so going back to the question of you know finding your most authentic self if you feel like you're always fighting yourself or fighting against your life or resistance or feeling like there's something that you want to be doing that you're not doing that's the awareness that I speak of that's when you know to me when I say authentic self I mean the kind that is you know feels beautiful whether you're in a t-shirt and no makeup or in a ball gown feels yeah. beautiful you know all the time but also says what you want to say you know say what you mean, mean what you say, um, not be afraid to just be, to just be <laughs> plain and simple. You know, yeah. we, I, I, it's very common from a younger age, but when we're, when we become adults, we, if we don't actually learn the alternative, we, we tend to stay stuck in it is we, we tend to foster and please, you know, first it starts by pleasing our parents and then maybe we start pleasing our teachers. But for me, I found that I was looking for anyone and every anyone to just be the person that would save me and be what I was supposed to do with my life or tell me what how to make decisions. Yeah. And I never learned to kind of tune in my own inner pilot, you know? And so the bitches, as I call them, they became my inner pilot, you know? And they, they took over my way of thinking. And so I was always, of course, I was looking for somebody to save me because I was looking for somebody to save me from myself, right? Uh -huh. And so I think, you know... Like I said, that awareness is definitely step one. But then knowing that, like, there's no one there to save you. You need to be saved. If any saving's going to happen, it's you saving yourself from yourself. You're you're the only one that can do it. You can't look outside yourself. You can't wish outside yourself. It's got to be you. And so it's interesting because one of my biggest frustrations in the fitness industry became one of the biggest, one of the first things that I made sure I took care of in my in the way I coach now. And that was this. In the fitness industry, I was one of those people that if if I had people paying me a monthly membership and they weren't showing up, a lot of business people might love that because they're like, oh, free money or I don't have to do any work for it. That was like my worst nightmare. I'd, it would keep me up at night. I hated the idea that people were paying and not showing up or not using my services. And the reason for it there, there was more than that, but I took responsibility for my client's journey and for their results more than they took responsibility for it. And yeah. I wanted it more than them in a lot of cases. And so 
that was the, that's one of the first things I do with my clients right now is I, I get on the same page in terms of I mean actually it's before I even you know accept them on as a client it's we come we have this understanding that I'm gonna help guide them and help give them clarity and strategy and focus and direction but it's their journey and they're the ones that they're the pilot and I teach people how to essentially be a pilot and gather the tools that they need to pilot their lives because the truth is I used to be everyone's pilot I was like eat this do this amount of reps do this amount of cardio and it doesn't work that way everybody needs their own map they need their own system and and they won't know what works for them until they they find it and design it. And so I help people design that for themselves because, you know, giving somebody this plug-and-play carbon copy um, plan or program, in some instances it can be beneficial to see how somebody else did it and, you know, learn from their mistakes and everything like that. But when it comes to living your life, like I believe how you eat and what you eat, that is a personal choice and that is nobody's business but your own. Mm -hmm. But we grew up, you know, in my world, I grew up with everybody – it was everybody's business. I mean, I was taking a Weight Watchers for the first time when I was seven. So I had people weighing in on what I ate, you know, from ever since I could remember. And, but anyways, back to your original question of like, what's the step of being authentic is, you know, first is that awareness of, wow, I'm, I'm shrinking myself. I'm not saying, I'm not living this life that I want to live. I'm feeling really conflicted. And because without that awareness, you can't do anything. Right. And the second step I think is just taking ownership and knowing that, you know what, you can acquire the best coaches in the world and the programs in the world, but you've got to become the pilot. And I truly believe that going at it, thinking that somebody else is going to have the answers for you or be able to solve your problem for you or be the magic bullet or missing link, it's what I call a losing game, both for me as a coach and for my clients, because it'll never work. I'm going to, they're, I'm going to make them, you know, need me. In at, I, I used to run these six week challenges, and when after the six week challenges were over, I'd have my clients come up to me, and we and jokingly I'd call it like six week crack. They'd be like, "Leanne, when's your next six week challenge? I need it. I need it." You know. Yeah. And I mean, those kinds of things can be really beneficial, but if you create this, um, you create it that you require it instead of just desire it, it can also be used as a weapon where you need it and you feel kind of weakened without it, and so. There's a lot of things that I that I learned from my time in the fitness industry that I've brought with me into into the way I do it now. But it's got to be you know lay down, uh, wave the white flag, lay down the weapons that you are using against yourself, whether it's your words or whether it's something else. And because if you're in a fight in fighting mode, the transformation really isn't isn't possible or authentic transformation. And then the other the other thing is just really taking ownership of that it's your journey. And then the the last thing would be this, you know, I believe it's this combination of, you know, my definition of self care as in like taking care of your body and taking care of yourself out of, you know, this feeling of of self worth, but also self acceptance. That's the practice that I'll be both self-care and self-acceptance. That's what I'll be practicing the rest of my life. So um, that's really what Ditch the Bitch is. It's a story of self-acceptance and how to create that in your life. Oh, that's so good. And, you know, I think that, like, some of this can become a little muddled because when you're talking about, like, this this awareness, like, bringing awareness mm-hmm. that, you know, you're not saying or doing what you want to say or you're, you're, like, a diluted version of yourself. But I think a lot of people kind of think that, you know, changing their body is going to be that solution you know like like you you think that like okay well if I lose those 20 pounds then then I can do that and I you know that I don't think that's that's not that's not the case at all and I think it's hard for people to come to that 
that true awareness of like, okay, it's actually the inner work. And then once I get to the self-care acceptance, I can start doing those things that are actually going to make me healthy. And, and, you know, like whether it's like, I want to, you know, go to the gym more or, you know, I want to eat healthier. Right. Right. You know, it it really, it really is. It's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a couple ways of looking at that. And you bring up such a good point. You know, one of the things I, I say is, you know, by all means, if you want to, if you want to lose weight, if you want to change your body, if you want to change anything in your life, go for it. Go for the gold. Change it, right? But don't you don't have to be your own biggest bitch in the meantime. Yeah. You don't have to treat yourself like crap, you know. And so I think there's there's that. Like you you can if 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 losing weight because here's the thing when I'm when I was carrying a lot more weight I wasn't the best version of myself, right? But I, I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. You know, if I went and gained back 100 pounds, the 100 pounds I lost, right? Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I probably wouldn't like it. I wouldn't. Be, but I know that with 100 extra pounds on my body right now, I could still feel beautiful in that body. And then I could go influence my body and change it and lose the weight again, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's like it sounds a little bit, you know, airy-fairy or kind of um, – uh, hard to picture, but I really believe that, you know, it goes, it goes back to the, the, the word body, you know, and I'm such a word nerd because I learned um, a few years ago that I wasn't really communicating very well because I was using words and I didn't even know what they meant, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and the word body, it means like the, the trunk, the actual body, uh, um, the, the thing itself, right? Yeah. And then I saw the word embody and the word embody includes your soul, like your heart, your the inner part of you, you know, and I, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's such a cool distinction because we don't think about it like that. You know, I now know looking back that all the weight that I was carrying was actually the weight of the weight. It was the weight of how I felt about my body. It was the weight of the hunger I was always experiencing it. And then it manifested an extra weight. You know, every time I felt like crap, of course, I'm not going to feel gung ho to to change my body, especially when I don't feel worth it, you know. And so, I mean, there is that that side of it that, yeah, you can go lose weight and then you can upgrade your self-image and your self-esteem later. And that's what I did. And it's such a harder, bumpier road than if you do one before the other or just do them simultaneously. If while you're changing your body, you know that you're also it's not even a matter of like changing your mindset. it's a matter of practicing talking to yourself like you want to be talked to, like you're somebody that you actually love as opposed to your worst enemy or your biggest, your own biggest bitch. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And, you know, I love how you talked about you, you know, you have to be your own pilot because like diets really are, are completely disempowering, you know, like we we seek out the authority of others to tell us what to do and that's like the most disempowering thing to do you know like to take the power back you have to step into your own airplane and be your own pilot and have other people supporting you and guiding you through the path but you have to take back that that ownership and and start to trust yourself and I just I just had to like add to that because I just thought that was such a genius analogy that you put out there Um, thank you yeah so so you mentioned earlier on that you know you were using your food and body as like a weapon of control judgment and comparison Mm. so you know how how did you put those those weapons down or how you know especially the control weapon because I think Mm. that that's such a huge one right 
Right. You know, this for, this whole discovery of, of food being a whip, weapon for me, it started um, when I, I, I got to the point where I was like, okay, I had major food addictions, um, specifically the, of the chocolate variety. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm going, if I'm going to go full force with this, I'm, that was the final thing that I hadn't, like, I still had my food addictions, but I was so great at the games of willpower and motivation and outsmarting my hunger that I just, I got really good at controlling my addiction as opposed to becoming free Mm. with, you know, you know, so one of the things that came about was I started to think about it and I was like, huh, this concept of a drug. Like I I came to the point and the shame the shame in me wouldn't have been able to talk about this until until I was able to talk about it, right? But I, I got to the point where I was like, huh, this concept, I'm using food as a drug. I'm using it to for comfort. I'm using it for connection. Um and and there's a I I, I did kind of study the the neurological side of, of food addiction, but but and that helped, but what what this uh, this awareness of using food as a drug, and I was like, interesting. And then I started becoming aware of when I was using food as a drug, and when I was using food as just food. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, my grandma when she was dying of cancer, she was on morphine. She had you know, morphine for a painkiller. So in her case, you know, we hear all the time drugs are, are bad. Yeah, But I was like, interesting, in my grandma's case, drugs weren't bad, drugs were good, right? And so that led me down this whole, like, just awareness kind of, of when I was using blanket statements around myself and around food as good, bad, right or wrong. And then once you start looking for those, you'll notice that they're everywhere, especially when it comes to to what you're eating. So I I started looking at drugs and I was like, at drugs, (laughs) I started looking at food as a drug and I was like, interesting, I'm going to start noticing when I'm using food as a drug. And so the first thing I... just by kind of acknowledging that to myself and, and saying, okay, Leanne, you're using food as a drug yeah. and it's not serving you. It's making you feel like crap afterwards. That in itself was enough to, to start peeling back those initial layers of shame that are around food. Because it's all started because I realized I still had so much shame around myself and food. Like food was still such a stress, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like I know nowadays, I'll, I'll put it in this in this perspective, right? Nowadays, Every once in a while, I'll still f- use the drug, you know, or sugar. Not not in a binge-like fashion like I used to, but where you know, food can be pleasure. Food can be connection. Food you eat a kind of food that you ate when you were fourteen, and it'll and it'll bring you back to the nostalgia you experienced. Just like if you hear a song on the radio that you listened to when you were fourteen, you'll feel that, you know. Yeah. And so, understanding um, what I was using food for and what I was actually seeking. was like the biggest awareness of of it all. I noticed that I was using it when I was either maybe lonely or bored or I was seeking some sort of connection and I was using food. And so when I became aware of it is when, and once again, it it wasn't a matter of like changing anything. It was strictly that straight up awareness, right? Mm -hmm. I was able to kind of, to, to catch myself, if you will, right? So back to your question of like, what was it that made me able to kind of lay down the weapons, right? The first thing was that awareness. The second thing was just removing the shame from it. And the shame was in the form of the judgments I was making around it. So for example, you know, um, if I if I was eating something, air quotes, bad, yeah. right? If, you know, if I was, if afterwards I was saying, man, I shouldn't have eaten that. I feel bad that I ate that. That would be, that would be guilt, right? But if I was saying things like, wow, I'm such a fat ass or I have no willpower, that's where the shame comes in. 
And it's the difference between, you know, nobody told me that it was mandatory to put in these judgments around food. Like food, can, what, what would happen if I just made food just food? Yeah. So I actually put myself on this experiment where I was like, what would happen if for, I think I just did it for two weeks, if I just completely use food as a way to love myself, not hate myself? Like what if I um, like really took pride in what I was eating and what if I um, arranged the, the the plate so that it looked pretty so that I actually had this experience of food and I and I made it so that I um one of the rules I gave myself was I'm not allowed to eat on the run like every time I eat it's going to sit down I'm going to sit down and I'm going to essentially like honor my body with food if you will you know and so I I I essentially took on a new practice and then I tweaked it from there I did a little experiment with huh what if I lived in this world of food freedom um the, the, the other side I, I forgot to mention of food freedom for me was I needed to learn how my body actually worked and what it needed and what it didn't it what it required and what it desired because I had a hard time telling the difference between when I was hungry and when I was craving something totally. the difference between when you, you know when I was full and when I just wanted to clean my plate like I had to just teach myself these new patterns and so I experimented um, with these awarenesses in mind, you know, and, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's more specific steps to it that I, you know, that I, they take women through, but in a nutshell, it really did come, come back to this, you know, awareness and kind of like owning the fact that I was using food in a way that didn't serve me. And it was making me, you know, whether I was, you know, when I say control, using it as a weapon of control, I mean like meticulously counting, tracking, measuring, weighing, all that, right? And and here's the thing, measuring and weighing and tracking your food, it's not necessarily a weapon, right? It can be a very powerful tool to help you influence your body. But you have to know what you're weighing. You know, if I'm if I'm weighing if I how however much I ate, if I went over this, you know, quote unquote calorie allotment of the day, it's it's the difference between me saying, oh, okay, I ate more than I planned to today versus I ate more than I planned to today, therefore I suck, this diet doesn't work anyways, I'm never going to get there. See how all that added stuff off the back of it that has nothing to do with the actual food is what was really being used as the weapon. Food's not the weapon. It's how I was using food as the weapon. So that's an example of control of just, you know, um, meticulously weighing and measuring because to me that's not a way to live that's not food freedom you know mm -hmm. but comparison is just like what I should have eaten what I could have eaten what I would have eaten it's it's like comparing yourself to what you think you're supposed to do or maybe a, a former version of yourself you can compare yourself to in terms of like well last week I was so good and I ate this and this week I suck I have no willpower or whatever we say to ourselves right um, and then and then obviously you know we, we talked about shame and guilt when it comes to food so I think, once again, just being aware of every time you're using it as a weapon against yourself, and then after that is then when you can go learn to use it as a weapon. I mean, don't learn to use it as a weapon, ladies and gentlemen. Use it <laughs> how to use it as a tool of influence. Right? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you you have some really, really cool downloads on your on your website at howtoditchthebitch.com um, that come from your come from your book, I'm assuming. And, you know, you you sort of talk about it like how you have to become a mad scientist. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that it's it's true. Like, you know, if we can approach things with like a curiosity and a playful manner and just like okay like I'm just gonna see how this feels for me in a non-judgmental compassionate kind way mm. it can make all the difference in the world uh to Absolutely. kind of finding finding your own your own path right 
Absolutely. And you know, when you go at it like a mad scientist too, it really helps you have a place to put all your past quote unquote failures. And here's what I mean by that. The first, you know, step in the scientific method, and I, I double checked with my best friend Wikipedia on this one um, <laughs> to make sure because I was not a science kid growing up. Funny how I, I love science now, but it's actually research, you know. And so, what if you? I mean, what if I imagine that the story was this? You're a mad scientist, and instead of thinking of it like all the diets that you failed at or that didn't work for you or that you were weak-willed or not motivated enough to follow, imagine if changing that to a story of, wow, now I really know what works for me and what doesn't work for me, what maybe works in the short term, what works in the long run, and use it as this like recon to go craft a better experiment next time. It takes all the shame away from who you have and haven't been up until that point. Because I think it's not the diet itself. It's not the present day version of us that's, that's getting us to feel like crap. It's our past that we're bringing into the future with us or bringing into the present with us. And we're saying, you know, because here's the thing. If I go on a diet, and it's, I always have this awareness every time I even use the word diet anymore. Mm. But let's say I'm on a diet, right? And I eat more than I plan to or that was that was too much than the plan called for, right? It's it's one thing if it's just this one isolated incident, right? But if I'm conditioned to think that that's just what I do or that's just who I am or that's just how I am, I'm it's going to have more impact on me when it happens. I'm not going to be able to just chalk it up as this one-time event. I'm it's going to feed into the story I have of myself. So I think one of the most important parts of the of being a mad scientist is framing your past as just experiments and experience and recon. Like, I mean, how many things have you done that you're like, holy crap, I would not know how to do this had I not gone and failed a thousand times. Yeah, totally. Right? But in the weight loss world, failure is this big shame. It's not, it's like a, the opposite of a badge of honor. You know, it's, it's this, like, we don't want anybody to know how many umpteen times we failed, right? But that sets us up for this, you know, losing game going forward because we're kind of in the mindset of like, I mean, there's a bunch of different mindsets we can be in, but one of them is, okay, nothing's worked before. Why would this be any different? And we kind of assume that it's not going to work from the very beginning. I call them the never gonna bitches. Because we assume, like, why is this going to be any different? And the truth is, 99% of the time, we're right because nothing is different. We pick the same type of program and hope that it's going to be different, but we haven't changed ourselves, right? Yeah. And so, what if the next time you go to experiment on any diet or plan, you simply, you know, had this kind of brief with yourself and said, okay, think this, let's figure out, okay, I tried that and I really liked that part of it, but that part of it was way too restrictive. Or I tried this and it really worked for a while, but it didn't really hold up when I went out of town or when I went, you know, to a restaurant. And because everybody knows what works for them and what doesn't work for them, but we're so ashamed of what didn't work that we never use it to our advantage. And so I think that's a that does us a big disservice because our past can be such really powerful recon to help us shape our future. Yeah, and that's such a good way to put it because I think so many of us look at you know look at our past as like as as like you said like a kind of like these scars like these shame mm. scars that but then we you know we go back to the same thing which is like it's right. it's funny how that's like even though you know we've had these experiences where we feel like we fail and that's again because we've we've approached it from like this disempowering perspective where it's like well it was my fault you know it's not the program's fault where instead of saying like hey maybe that wasn't the the right program for me or maybe there were some things in there that did work for me and others that didn't right absolutely absolutely yeah. There yeah. sorry go ahead 
Oh, I was just going to say, there's so many different ways to reframe any story that's not serving us, you know? And But the only way we can do that is when we acknowledge, hey, <laughs> this isn't serving me, you know? And the truth is, is that, and I'm sure you experience it too with the people that you work with, the, the kind of conversation that we're having right now, it's not for 90% of the people that are seeking general weight loss. A lot of people, they still do want, okay, give me a food plan, give me some workouts. They know how the story is going to end, but they're not ready to kind of make that shift in their mind. And that's okay. That is a-okay. If they're ready, there's people like us that, that can help them. And, and in the meantime, I believe everybody has the right to find what they do desire, you know? But this is the kind of thing because it's the kind of conversation that we're having right now. It's not this, okay, change your life in 30 seconds and have flat abs in 15 minutes kind of conversation. Yeah. And so it's, it's definitely – you know, there's there's the people that are looking for to make that mindset shift, and that's the kind of journey that um, I think these conversations are conducive to because it's not the kind of conversation that I ever want to convince anybody to have. You know, I told I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, I think that um, like I've turned, I'm sure you have too, like you turned clients down mm-hmm. because they're 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 not there they're not ready for it you know and and they're not ready to be that pilot as you would say right and I totally get that because I wasn't ready until I was ready you know and so once again like you said just having compassion instead of judgment and and that's the thing I would have you know a former version of me would have said oh my gosh they are the people that don't do this they're they're weak-willed they don't want it bad enough and that's not it it's just you know there there's so many things going on in somebody's life and um but as as a as a professional trying to help somebody, I think that's that's probably one of the biggest th- takeaways I took from the fitness industry is I'm never going to help be able to help my clients come from a place of acceptance if I'm sitting there judging myself and then in turn them. Yeah, totally. You know, and so it's like the first thing I tackle with clients is this concept of judgment because I'll tell you, I used to be that gal that would stand in the grocery grocery store lane looking at the person behind me and looking at their groceries on the belt and, and judging their choices. I was that gal because that's I got indoctrinated into that mindset in the fitness industry, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's and I was only judging other people as harshly because I was still judging myself as harshly. You know, absolutely. I absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm the same way. You know, I, I had the worst biases and, and, and judgments towards towards other people and other women and other women's bodies. And, right. and uh, yeah, I mean, I like, do I regret that? Yeah, but that's where it got me to where I am today in terms of, you know, helping to promote the other, the other way of thinking to, to, you know, to let go, to let go of those judgments, because those really are just coming from your own internal judgments. Absolutely. When we cast them upon others. So you, I know you're very, like, you're very scientific, or you're a mad scientist. And I think there's this perception that kind of self-improvement needs to be very woo-woo. And so I'd love, I'd love to, and I don't know if you can summarize this in, in kind of a succinct way or like a practical way, but how, like, how does the role of the brain and nervous system relate to self-image and and, and self-esteem? Like, how can we leverage you know, that knowledge, that science, and apply it to to our own self-improvement journey. So the simplest way to explain the brain and the nervous system as it relates to the body and as it relates to the mind is by, by telling people the a very simple story around what the brain is actually designed to do. And the brain, it has so many different functions. It's it's the Mac Daddy of them all. It's, it's kind of the, the common denominator, and I'll explain that in a moment. But it's primary and really its only and most important job is to keep you alive, to keep you from death, okay? 
And so the way it does that is it uses your perception, whether it's what you what your perception of danger is. It also uses the little army or soldiers it has on the ground in your body, your, your sensory system, to detect actual threat. So whether you're seeing a bear coming or whether you're seeing a tornado coming or hearing a bear or tornado, you know, it uses your, your senses. But it's the brain's job is how can I create prediction and response so that I can keep myself safe? And that's where the word safe can take on different meanings, right? We, as humans, you know, this, I'm actually talking about the mammal brain, you know, so talking about dogs and, and cats and humans, but where the humans differ from cats and dogs and other mammals are we have these human emotions, that the whole self-actualization side, the, the sense of it that um, we seek out belonging connection, just like, just like mammals do, but we seek it out. Um, our perception of connection and belonging and acceptance is different than that of an animal. So whereas a dog and a cat, it's, there's a social hierarchy in the animal kingdom. Yeah. We too have that in the human world. But, you know, my perception of my social belonging, like you could, if you know, I could feel all gung-ho and feel, oh, yay, I'm, I have a great group of friends. And somebody could walk up to me and say, Leanne, everybody hates you. And even though my social standing per se hasn't really changed in, in reality, my perception of it has now changed. And so that's what I mean by when I say stress or threat can be like your your perception of it but on a brain level it's it means literal stress or threat too so if you're physically in danger or if you are emotionally in danger right so back to the the brain being kind of like the head honcho if you go to a restaurant and you have an awful experience the waitress is a bitch and you have a cockroach in your food and think of all the awful things that could happen would you want to complain or or speak to the hostess or to the owner or the manager yeah the owner right exactly right well that is how the brain works the brain is the head honcho because it's responsible for monitoring everything that is going on in your body, every system is, is connected to the nervous system, the endocrine system, the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, and then the musculoskeletal system that is so um, predominantly influenced in, in the weight loss industry, right? But so it's, you know, there's this whole, there's the difference between the cause and effect and, and the, the simp system and the symptom, right? You know, if I'm, um, you know, using chocolate as a drug, like we were talking about earlier, it's just there. It's it's one of the symptoms of my relationship with chocolate and the connections I've created with it, right? But it's you know, a lot of people think they have a food problem or they have a weight loss problem, but a lot of times it's based on the connections, and we're experiencing the symptoms. And so a lot of a lot of times we go and we try to treat the symptoms without actually treating the system, or we treat the the effects but not the cause, you know. And it's like imagine if a if uh, an entire village is drinking from a river and there's a big, you know, pollutant spilling in the river, it w would it be easier to go upstream and stop the spill and uncontaminate, if that's a word, the river, <laughs> or would it be more efficient to go to every single person's water bottle every single day and try to um, remove the contamination from the water bottle? Yeah. It'd make more sense to go upstream, right? Right. And that's the power of the nervous system of the brain. You know, without getting getting into the geekery behind it all, the, the brain speaks a language, and the language that it speaks is stress and threat. And we know it as the fight-or-flight reflex, right? But we can actually tune into that to talk to our brain and ask 
ask it questions. And when I say questions, I, I mean um, in its own language. You know, we our brain is giving us signals all the time. If you're on a physical side, if you're in pain, if you're lacking range of motion, if there's tightness or stiffness, um, if you, you, you're limited in range of motion, that is your brain telling you something's going on. I can't predict and respond according to the ground or according to the movement that you're doing. And so I'm going to kind of give you a little wake up call that some to, to go address it. So in my case, I didn't have no, I no longer had an injury in my spine, but I was still experiencing pain years after my injury. Yeah. Well, that was my brain's way of saying you never went and go, went and fixed those movement patterns and you never went and fixed your, your visual system and your vestibular system, which is the balance system. And so it kept telling me all these signals that had nothing to do with my back because it was telling me I'm not safe, right? On a, um, on a emotional level, on a behavior change level, the first thing I do with my clients is I detect whatever, I help them figure out or identify what's the threat in their life. Because usually it's not the food plan or the food itself or that they're lacking willpower or, or motivation. There's usually a threat. So it's, it's usually in the environment. So when I say threat, I mean what is posing the trouble to them. So nine times out of 10, if somebody is overeating or if they're not getting themselves committed, they might have too much on their plate or maybe they're experiencing personal situations or, or maybe they're experiencing professional strife. It's the thing is never the thing. Whatever people are coming to with the the wound itself, it's like the, the it's like um, trying to remove the contamination from each individual water bottle. Mm -hmm. That's not the problem. Something's going on upstream. And so um, kind of I, I probably didn't do the, the best job explaining this because there's, there's so much to share about the brain. But it's so easy to get to the root of the problem or of the struggle when you speak brain, if you will, when you speak threat. And threat can show up in so many different ways in, in your mind and in your actions, but also in your body. And so long story short, um, there's, there's a language that you can tune into your brain. It's talking to you all the time. And once you learn to speak it, you can create change in, in seconds rather than years or months. It's, it's really can be that immediate. Yeah, like I think, you know, it's giving it's giving us cues all the time, right? And I think a lot of that, you know, from, from when as it relates to kind of your relationship with yourself and your relationship with food, uh, you know, comes from uh, the the emotional, uh, you know, discomfort, which would be like threats in in our in our life, you know, and that and I think exactly. that can manifest in like, chaos like you said having too much on your plate you know not having enough time for for doing things uh for for yourself or maybe you're lacking like that connection that belonging that love like you're you're bored you're lonely like i think that all of those Absolutely. are are you know even though they don't sound quote unquote threatening they are, you know, those are stressors. And so any of that stuff is then what you want to start to actually address instead of saying like, well, you just need to stop eating cookies. You just need to not buy cookies because that's not going to solve the issue. That's, that's exactly, yeah, like that your, your brain is still going to be looking for a response or um, sorry, like that solution to right. the, to the issue. So you actually have to go and understand where that cue is coming from to address the the root of it. If I'm taking what you said and oh, like yeah. rewording it Com properly, completely, yeah. Because here's the thing: if I'm feeling like crap, or I'm feeling disconnected, or I'm feeling bored or emotional, and I reach for the cookie, I'm not actually reaching for the cookie. Well, part of me is, but I'm reaching for that connection and the experience of that we get from the connection of that cookie is the same kind of 
um, we're looking for the serotonin, the dopamine, and the oxytocin that also takes place when we when we have connection with somebody in our lives, when we're not feeling lonely, when we're feeling a sense of belonging. And it doesn't even have to be on an intimate level or romantic level, just a sense of you know like-mindedness. Usually we're seeking that connection and for me, I from a young age, I learned to use food to create that connection that I didn't get. So some people use food, some people use exercise, some people use sex, some people use actual drugs. It's we're looking for the connection. We're not the drug itself is just the thing. The connection is the thing that we're, you know, if you want to call it addicted to. Mm-hmm. And so what you said is spot on. We're not looking for the cookie per se. The cookie has just we've conditioned it or practiced using it as the connection that we we couldn't get yeah yeah and again it's about approaching it in a non-judgmental way like being that mad scientist where you just kind of notice that and you're like oh i'm doing this because i'm actually craving connection okay i'm human this happens to a lot of people you know how can i learn from this and then start to actually cultivate change in my life and so i think that's how you know, we're trying to say you use this information instead of like saying like, oh my God, I'm broken. Right. <laughs> uh, there's no, you know, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And no, no one's broken. We just, we feel confused. We feel a little bit lost, but you know, and, and sometimes we even feel weakened, but because we're weakened, it doesn't mean we're weak. And because we're lost, it doesn't mean, I mean, we're lost on an individual basis or we feel lost doesn't mean we are lost. And and broken is definitely the one that I think a, myself and, and a lot of women have experienced like, wow, is there something wrong with me? Is my body broken? Is it is it me? You know, but no, that's the human part of you. That That's the brain part of you. It's your brain's under threat. There's nothing wrong with you. Your brain's just under threat. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, so good. I feel like we could go on and on and on, but we have to start to wrap things up here. So the last question that I like to ask all of my guests is, what is the most fearless thing you have done? Wow. You know, I, I mean, I, my, my superficial answers would be, um, I, I was on a uh, I went randomly just went skydiving and did three bungee jumps and got my nose pierced all in a 36 hour period in New Zealand when I was 21. Wow. Was, it, all of them were just unexpected. I was, I was just like in New Zealand and I was on this adrenaline rush or something. And so that would be my superficial answer. You know, my deeper, more poetic side, um, would probably tell you, um, you know, what I did, what I did a, a, a bit over a year ago, which I had, you know, this, this, uh, livelihood that, you know, I had worked my ass off to create and, um, I knew that it wasn't serving my life anymore. And I essentially just put the, put the stopper on, on an entire way of living my life and who I was being and how I was showing up and going to work every day. And, um, started from scratch in kind of as a freshman, you know, in a new segment of a, of a newer industry to me and without, um, you know, without talking brain talk, without prediction and response, you know, so I did create some threat in my life by doing that. But it was one of those decisions where I was, um, the fear of staying the same finally outweighed, um, the fear of moving forward without the ability to, to really predict the future fully. And so I, I'd say that's probably when I say fearless to me, that equated, like, what did I do where, where I had no guarantee, no plan, um, no certainty, and just had to kind of believe in myself. And that would be that. That's awesome. Oh, that's so good. I love it. So where can people find you? 
Absolutely. You know, the best place to to dig into any of the material that I've created, and there's lots of cool stuff to dive into, would just be howtoditchthebitch.com. Yeah, and so you have a free sample of your book, How to Ditch the Bitch, right? The, the book um, yes, on your website yeah, as well. You have some cool downloads. You have a really, really awesome music video that I just think <laughs> everyone needs to go and watch because you can you, well, I'll let you describe it. Can you just tell yeah. everyone about your music video? <laughs> sure. You know, talking about being authentic, right? I've been singing since I could talk. But the world essentially never knew that I could sing because I was—I didn't believe in myself, and I was so insecure in myself and my body that I was a sing- that I could die tomorrow, and the world wouldn't have known I was—I was a singer. And so the video was my way of just kind of being my authentic self, and really like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this as me. And so I. Like I said, I've kind of used self-deprecating humor my whole life, right? But I am kind of a, a dork and a jokester and all that. And so I, it's kind of a, a satire music video, if you will. So you see, you'll see it right on the video, but it's, I mean, on the on the homepage. But it's um, just the official How to Ditch the Bitch music video. Um, and I just actually wrapped on uh, shooting the, the next music video. And it's, it's, uh, it's more along the, the body image side of things and body acceptance movement. And that'll be out in a couple weeks. So that'll be... Depending on hearing this podcast, it'll it might be up there um, now, or it might be a, a little ways from now. But it should be up there within the next couple of weeks, and so um, you'll get to see. I I, I like to use music um, and humor to to create effective messages because I speak the language of music and I speak the language of of dorky humor. Um, and yeah, so awesome. it was just a testament to me being my authentic self. Is uh, I'm a singer, and now I'm not a singer that doesn't sing. I'm a singer that sings. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh my god, people have to check it out, especially if you were, you know, like Paul Abdul fan in the in the eighties. Oh, <laughs> yes. And if you're a Michael Jackson fan, then you'll love the next one. Oh nice. Oh my god, I can't wait to see it. Well thank I'll you. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> Good teaser. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. It was awesome. We'll have to have you back on again because I just feel like there's so many more things that I wanted to ask you that we didn't get to. But um, yeah, you're an amazing woman. And just uh, thank you for putting your work out into the world. I think that it's it's so much needed. And, um, you know, hopefully everyone will um, head to howtoditchthebitch.com and start to follow your work. Oh, thank you so much, Summer. It was a blast. I, I know that we could we could go on and on for ages talking about this stuff, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, we could. All right, rock on. If you like what you've heard, please head to iTunes and leave me a review. I would be so grateful if you took two minutes to do that for me. And don't forget to head to summerinandin.com or summerthenutritionist.com to grab your free Rule Breakers Guide to Rock in Your Bod. Until next time, rock on. Yeah.